0: This podcast is sponsored by Bailey Gifford. Their podcast series, Short Briefings on Long-Term Thinking, brings you in-depth knowledge and challenging points of view from Bailey Gifford's investment managers. Search online for Bailey Gifford Short Briefings.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the New Model Advisor Planning People podcast podcast. I'm Ian Horn, and I've lined up a podcast with a difference today. I'm joined by Ross Slight, Chief Strategy Officer at SOMO. Ross, welcome. It's good Thank to you. have you here.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Great to be here.
1: Hey, no worries. Well, um, I think we're going to start with an explanation. Uh, the explanation being that I don't think many of our, our listeners are going to know much about SOMO. Um, so from my perspective, uh, Somos one of the more intriguing companies that I've come across in my uh, adventures in fintech, if you will. Um, you do some really exciting stuff. There's probably no point in me explaining it when we've got you here. Um, so, Ross, what is SOMO? Um, what do you do? Uh, and how is it relevant to financial advice and wealth management?
0: Sure. So, so SOMO is a digital product accelerator which is a lovely uh, descriptor for basically we build digital things. So we build websites, we build apps, we build back-end tools, we build anything which has got digital in it, from virtual reality, augmented reality, all the way through to your more traditional digital mobile sites, websites, so on and so forth. And we're an accelerator because we help customers, and our our customers are big brands uh, and small brands and startups and scale-ups, uh, to effectively be able to take them on the digital transformation journey, which they're going on, or to help them come up with new corporate ventures. So completely new products, fit for market, without any of the debt of the traditional business has got in terms of transformation. Um, and we've been, you know, our two main core Uh, focuses are actually on the finance sector and on the auto sector and in the finance sector we've been lucky enough to work with high street banks so we've everything from the end consumer applications that people use all the way through to the tool sets that staff use in branch through to back-end tool sets, which they can utilize to get, get great, greater efficiencies for them. Uh, we've worked with wealth management companies. We've worked with uh, investment research companies. So we've got a fairly sort of broad, wide experience of everything within the core financial arena. And then we've also worked extensively with companies like uh, credit agencies and uh, some of the, uh, the uh, reg tech side of area of things with regards to greater security and registration aspects. So, um, you know, sometimes with smaller companies, sometimes with the biggest brands that you can think of. So um, I'm interested in this fantastically changing world and the relationships that people are having with technology, uh, particularly in how that is changing traditional businesses and where the startups are coming in in order to be able to accelerate that forward.
1: Okay. Um, So it's interesting you're in speaking to, well, speaking to the listeners here are largely financial advisors. and. I was reading a study recently that suggested that one in 50 financial advice businesses uses Microsoft Excel as its back office system. So the kind of transformation you're talking about is, is beyond that, significantly beyond that. But I, I think the main thing I'm trying to convey here is that this is an audience. This is that Some of them grasp tech. Some, some of our listeners and some of you listening grasp tech very well, but many don't. Um, what should financial advisors do? Um, do you think this kind of tech revolution is just about personal finance and banking or or is there a more applicable kind of thing for for financial advisors
0: yeah i think that the financial advisors need to uh, you know utilize tech where it makes sense for there to serve their audience needs mm-hmm. right so there are so we have worked with uh, uh, banks and wealth management companies that deal with very very high, ultra high net worth individuals and those ultra-high-net-worth individuals, uh, you know, you can uh, sort of bifurcate it. You've got people who are completely technology agnostic. They don't really understand it. They don't want to have anything to do with it. And you've got people who are completely adopting, and they are the most leading technology experts you've got there. So you've got to understand what your audience actually wants and what they need and, and what they're prepared to do. Because a lot of the time, this is about creating uh, new habits. Or, in, or increasing the ability to be able to generate new ways of working with an end customer. And that takes time and effort and energy, and some people are open to that, some people aren't open to that. So the answer is, it's not all, you know, I'm not here to sort of say, here's the Kool-Aid in order to be able to go <laughs> off and say, you've got to embrace technology, it's got to be right for your business, you know. And quite often, you know, you look at the, the, the transformational aspects of things, you talk about you know people using um, Excel as a, as a back office uh, tool, um, there's nothing wrong with that. It's set, set up to be able to do what it needs to do. But there's the, we see a very clear path of transformation that people go down. Um, there's you know, this concept of digitization, which is taking what you do offline and plonking it straight online without any changes whatsoever, to take a form that you would have offline and you just have the ability to fill that in online. No changes to that. Then there's digitalization, which is taking that form and improving it within the online environment. So trying to shorten it, trying to make it easier to utilize. Uh, but, you know, just really tinkering around the edges. And then you've got the transformation itself, which is then to say, well, actually, that form... We could probably do something completely different be able to get the information that we require off the back of that. We could maybe draw draw it from another database or we could maybe, you know, stop having to make customers go through this hoop um, on their journey. Uh, Let's completely reimagine what that will be. So an example of that would be like, you know, Monzo being able to open up a current account within a couple of minutes, scanning your uh, your ID for KYC rather than have to send it in. All those aspects of things is a transformational element and then you've got the people who are going and saying ah look it always goes over there who've uh, got a form <laughs> um, actually let's not even think about that form let's think about trying to produce a product which is fundamentally different for that audience that is going to not be in this case a form or a current account or whatever but something that solves a real problem that no one's been able to solve beforehand right and so you've got you've got you've got companies operating in every single aspect of that and quite often in every single one of those four stages in the company itself so you've got so as a financial advisor you've got to work out where where's the benefit to my end customer where's the real pain points of my end customer and what is it i'm going to have to be able to change because it might just be, I need to digitize some stuff. I need to digitalize it. I need to improve it. That might be absolutely fine for the end customer and for the, for the business itself. It might be that, you know what, all our customers are asking for this type of um, uh, advice or this type of way of being able to show the data in terms of their investments, and we need to build a completely new product to be able to do that. So it all comes down to how do you serve your end customer best? And those customers, as I say, are wide and varied.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because I think the um, the human side of financial services is often overlooked, and uh, and one of the most important things, well, one of the biggest value adds that most of our audience brings is is that ability to talk to people, empathize with people, and so on. Um, but I suppose speaking to the things you're mentioning about technology, I can't help but think from what you're saying that integration is perhaps the big, the big thing here, making sure that you know databases speak to each other, information is actually easily provided. So. Uh, From your perspective, you know, how how does SOMO work to help with integration to make sure that things actually link up the way they should? And what are the challenges of doing that?
0: Yeah, this is uh, this is the biggest issue which we have in any uh, business when we approach it is what debt are they carrying? What technical debt are they carrying? what's over the last 20 30 years that they had to be able to create and invest in, in terms of systems and why do none of them talk to them, each other and why can't we get the data that we want you know we still work in the, you know in the banking field whereby i think it's something like 80% of all uh, atm transactions pass through a cobol mainframe at some point now, that's 1960s tech right so we've got a big issue and it takes a long time to be able and a, and a massive investment to be able to start putting those uh, uh, systems into being what we call a, a modern engineering system. And that means you know, basically trying to componentize everything and be able to create uh, a middleware, uh, a, a, a what's called an application, uh, a, an API layer basically, um, which allows you to be able to talk between various different systems. So it's all about the translation aspect here, um, often translation to older systems, uh, and we're trying to get the data out of that rather than having to replace the system, often being able to put in new systems that can, again, pass data through and translate through these API layers. So this sort of microservices level, this you know, gets very technical very quickly. Um, the point is that all you're trying to do is, is to create a foundation to be able to produce all these great front end products off the back of it. And you have to have in place uh, a consistent view as to what your technical stack is going to be and that needs to be as uh, as forward-thinking as possible to the what you're going to want to be able to do uh, with your with the front ends and the fundamental play for this is to never forget about the back-end technology and just try and do some nice front-end stuff. Yeah. You know, if there's money to be spent, it's about upgrading where you sit with your stack, upgrading what you're doing with your database, your content management services, your, um, your, your any aspect of what you're utilizing today. Because this is all about, in the end, about being able to take data from one source, match it with another set of, set of sources, aggregate it, curate it, and be able to display it in a beautiful manner, right? To provide value to a customer or to an advisor or to whatever that will be. And all the systems that are coming in, you know, we, we often rush the, the, to this viewpoint of like, oh, don't worry, it's great. AI is going to solve everything for us. It's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely fine and wonderful yeah. point. Actually, it won't solve anything if your data's spread across fourteen different databases in different formats, and there hasn't been mm-hmm. a, 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 an ability to be able to, to normalize that.
1: Yeah, uh, and certainly, if you, you know, it's nice having a, a shiny front end for these systems. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've heard instances of this, and I will be exploring this here in one of my upcoming fintech columns, actually, about back-office or well, back-end systems being actually upheld by printing and paper and, you know, it's nothing like what you'd they expect all are. They all go are. through. They all are. I mean, okay.
0: every single industry has a, has a perspective. I, mean, I was shot. I bought a new car uh, just recently, um, and the garage that I went to, everything was done digitally up until the point where I had to go and sit in the dealership for uh, a good two and a half hours and read through paper that and then sign and wet signature paper on the basis. And I'm like, why do I have to do this? And I said, well, this is what, the way we've always done it. This is the way which the finance house is going to be able to, to, uh, to take those, those details. And I'm like, well, that's great, but there are finance houses which will very happily be able to take non-wet signatures and be able to you know, provide that information to me up front, and I'll be able to read, read it, not have to sit in your dealership. And so they've they got, they'd, they'd done everything right up until that point to try and digitise that process, and they created a great number of efficiencies. But ultimately, they're reliant on a third party mm-hmm. to be able to be as good as they are. Yeah. <laughs> so so that's... that's and, and, mm-hmm. and we honestly... This is the thing is, when you're in control of your own destiny, that's brilliant. Yeah. But you think about the number of third parties that you're drawing either data from or you're drawing information from or content from or whatever it might well be, and you're in a position whereby you're only as good as the weakest chain in the in, in mm-hmm. the, link, the link of the chain. Yeah. So, so that's a perspective whereby the back office stuff is... You can get great efficiencies out of doing simple, straightforward, easy things. And just go back to that journey again, that journey of digitization, digitalization, transformation, venturing. Uh, at At the digitization, digitalization end, you're talking mostly about being able to create greater efficiencies. That's what your business case becomes. I'm saving money or I'm saving time, or I'm saving time and money, and that time can be utilized to go and do something better for the business. Whereas on the venturing side of stuff, you're talking about generating new revenues from new new products, new markets, new opportunities in that base. And it's nothing about efficiencies. So when people are looking at what needs to be done, it's about finding what's going to help. And it's not just about the end-end customer. As we said, it's about with back office and with all those systems. It's about the people working for you, how you can make their lives better. Because one of the biggest problems we have is that we as it's the very, very first time in I think I think, you know, history whereby you're in a position whereby what people have access to now on their phones is of the highest quality experiences. Be that Candy Crush or be that, you know, um, uh, content or whatever it might well be. They're brilliant. They're fantastic. People understand. I can, I can you know. I can call uh, a taxi and get one within two two minutes coming to me yeah. and, uh, and view it. Magic, really, magic. And yet you you put me into an office which is using old technology and old systems and old processes, and that's really not what I where I want to be. Know, th- because why can't I have the experience that I have as a consumer with many of these services that I have within businesses? And when it comes down to transformation, you're really talking about you know people, process, and technology. Technology is an easy part to be able to get right, but as soon as you put in new technology, you're changing processes, and when you change processes, you're changing culture, and when you're changing culture, that affects people. And so you're in a perspective whereby you, know, you might seem to be here's a here's a business case about efficiency to be able to create. Uh, you know m- more time uh, um, you know, uh, less cost that's the sort of hard metrics soft metrics are that if you if you have a technology enabled business with back office your staff are going to be happier. They're going to get things done quicker. They're going to want to stay around for longer. They're going to be in a better, much better situation of enjoying their jobs mm-hmm. more because you've given them the right tools.
1: Yeah. Well, let's let's ground this in a real example because, as you touched upon earlier, you've done some some work with banks, uh, and I guess that revolves around per- personal finance rather than ultra high net worth stuff. I assume. It's a it's a mix. It's a, mix. a complete okay. mix. Yeah. Complete mix. Okay. Well, let, let's ground it in personal finance anyway, just to. Just, just for a basic understanding, what is it that you've been able to do that's helped banks improve that process and improve people's access or understanding of personal finance?
0: Yeah, so a lot of this comes down to make... So I do all in strategy, right? So yeah. I actually never get my hands dirty cutting code or designing things when it comes down to it. A lot of this is about trying to get banks to understand what their role is in today's society. And the fact that they're they're spending so much time looking over their shoulders at who their startup competitors are, uh, or indeed not spending enough time looking over their shoulders and considering that they're just in the peloton of X number of you know, similar banks. And trying to get them to understand that we're living with an audience that has, it's not just an audience, you can no longer just be a bank, right? Very clearly there are, there's an audience that is uh, highly digitally enabled and highly financially aware. And that's where most people go and spend their time trying to fish in, basically, and it becomes a hard competitive set to try and get there. There are audiences that banks need to serve. Certain banks should be serving better in terms of those which have less financial awareness and less digital capabilities. Um, And that's where we get to a position whereby you need to understand exactly what your audience problems are. Once you've got that... How you bring the services to bear is really interesting because it could be that you would want to design them and run them yourself. Many banks still run in their fact that they want to own uh, that silo so that anything I'm doing within personal finance will be, you know, within my insurance or my mortgages or my loans or whatever, I'm going to own. But we're, we're now moving to a position, particularly with open banking, where we get to the ability to be able to create marketplaces, where the best in class can be brought directly to the individual, and uh, the banks become a curator, an aggregator and a curator of those services, uh, rather than just providing their own services on that basis. And we've seen that happen you know, in lots of areas like insurance, for example, where mostly this is now, you know, the AA doesn't produce its own insurance, it just aggregates in from multiple different other angles and um, players. So... You're in a position whereby you understand your audience, you understand what it is that you can provide to them, and then you provide the right services to that audience. That's how you start to change personal finance. It's not about, I've got a swingy, wonderful idea about automation that'll save, you know, uh, the ability to get help to save more money. That's, that's an idea, but that's not going to solve the problem. None of, none of the startups have a magic button which says I'm going to solve the problem for you because it comes down to the fact that you've what's happened is that particularly in personal finances the last 20 30 years people have just been earning a lot hmm. of money uh, and yeah. doing the same old things and they haven't needed to change. And a lot of those people are still in control at the top of those organizations. So you're in a position whereby you're, you know, when you need to try and think about radical change for this audiences which have so many different needs now. I mean, we're living in an, with audiences where you know, uh, 22% of the population are now freelancers. Now, that didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. Um, you know, four, 4 million people make their primary uh, living out of gig economy platforms. Now, again, didn't exist even 10 years ago. So the audience has changed. That means that you as a a, a finance institution have to change with it. Uh, But you've got to know who you're talking to and why you're talking to them and Mm -hmm. what purpose you've got to be able to serve them. And then you can start thinking about the whizzy, wonderful technical uh, solutions.
1: that's, That's interesting. In your role being a strategist, I find it interesting because a number of the the businesses within the financial advice space, it's quite a fragmented market. You've got a number of small businesses, many with fewer than 10 people working there. Uh, You know, you you often hear that thing about people having time to work, you know, working on the business or in the business, and people often don't have enough time to actually do the working on the business part. Um, So how did you at SOMO work with a bank? How did you identify a problem that consumers were having you know what's what's the trick to that is it a case of surveying people or do you go through the process yourself how do you go about the creative angle to make sure you're actually developing something useful
0: so this is customer journeying basically Mm -hmm. so we use multiple different techniques to try and map out the customer journey today and then multiple techniques to work out what that customer journey should be in the future. And so that's everything from stakeholder interviews all the way through to customer research, through to um, labs and the ability to be able to sit down with them and and go through journeys with them and understand what the problems are, putting up um, ideas as to what those journeys could be. But the idea is you want to get to map out what what, what the journey is today, and then collectively between the customer And the stakeholders within the organization you try and map out what the journey could be and then you apply some business logic to that to be able to say we think this will save x y and z we think this will generate abc and at that point you start to be able to prioritize so you're always playing off different aspects so Something that might be fantastically brilliant for a customer, but bring you yeah. no revenue and cost you a great deal of money, you're going to have to work out if that's better than something that's going to bring you lots yeah, of revenue. I was going to ask, is, the customer.
1: is the customer always right?
0: Um, in my world, yes. Okay. In my world, I mean, my, my whole job is to represent the customer mm-hmm. um, because I'm of the firm belief that what digital has brought us is democratization, access to tools, access to everything, whereby if you don't look after your customers now, then someone else will do it for you. And being as close to your customers as possible. It doesn't mean the customer's always right. It means that some of your customers will always be right. (laughs) And they're the ones you've got to work out on, right? Uh, Come down to this, you know, gone are the days where where people think in massive volume terms about things. I think we have to be thinking in much smaller segments. You know, whose problem am I going to solve? If I'm, you know... um, uh, something like Anna, uh, as a, as a, uh, which is set up for freelancers on that basis, is that that's the problem I'm going to solve. I'm going to solve that 4 million person or 6 million person or 21% or whatever it might well be of freelancers' problems. Now I'm going to concentrate doing that bloody brilliantly. That is what I'm going to do. And that's where, you, that's where the focus on that customer. Across that, there'll be so many other different needs in that group. But you're in a position whereby as soon as you can map out that journey and see where the gaps are, you can start to make your prioritizations. And that becomes your roadmap for transformation because you can't do all the things all the time. And at the same time, you've got to sort of run a digital health audit as to where you sit with technology and the ability to be able to facilitate that. Because some of the stuff you want to be able to do might take many years for you to change the technology stack. And the investment in that is going to be bigger than the investment in um in the return, you're going to get out of that particular solution. This podcast is in association with Bailey Gifford. Find out more about their range of funds and investment trusts at www.baileygifford.com.
1: Yeah, so to look at kind of a broad brush approach, and you're welcome to say that this, this question's a bit wrong. Um, But I'm wondering what the kind of quick wins are when it comes to looking at, you know, making your business better, more efficient. Uh, You know, is the answer in compliance, de-risking, client onboarding, security, um, you know, cost savings or just efficiencies? Do you usually find there's a particular thing that you can step in and easily improve vastly?
0: Uh, I think normally, particularly in an industry that uh, has to be a combination of digital consumption as well as face-to-face human contact, what we find is that that face-to-face human contact, the sitting down and going through either options or reports or data or onboarding or signing is the place that we would normally want to start at because that's the emotive, empathetic part of the journey. You can improve a form and optimize a form to the nth degree in a digital consumption perspective, but that's not going to make a customer love you. But instead of spending fifteen minutes going through compliance details and making wet signatures on X, Y, and Z, and then not having the right data on this, you know, you know, on this printout, on that printout, that if you can get something slick and very, very reactive to the customer needs, sitting down with them, then you've got an emotive part of the journey which actually can be uh, can benefit from massive transformation. We've seen this, you know, so far in, in the auto sector, being able to sit down and, uh, you know create uh, uh, the configuration of your car, know which cars are available for that side-by-side side with a dealer is by far the best experience that you could ever have because it makes you want the car, it makes you emotively understand, you trust the person because it's person-to-person contact. Um, you know, Even being able to reduce, say, uh, uh, opening an, uh, an account or having an account query in branch from 45 minutes and umpteen systems down to one system and 10 minutes is a better experience, right? So that's where I'd always start because I think that's where the real value comes into it. How can I enhance the time I have with that customer to be able to create something that has real value, emotive value, and techn- how can technology aid that? Not replace it, Yeah, because it's never going to replace it. And this is the one thing I do want to make a point on mm-hmm. is that anyone who says that technology solves everything right, is completely bonkers because they have drunk the Kool-Aid too much. The, the principles of this are technology assists us It allows us to be able to do things in completely different ways and solve completely different problems, but it assists us along that journey. Technology is never about taking away face-to-face or chat or the trust factor that comes between two people. Um, Where it can help is, for example, a completely different industry, but uh, KLM have moved to uh, customer services to a lot of that being serviced through chat, through Messenger and WhatsApp and um, uh, other channels and text so on and so forth. A vast majority now of their problems are solved by a chatbot for people who come through. And that gives the people at the call centre the ability to really understand that if they can't triage a problem directly via the chatbot, they can now spend the time really sorting out the problem for the customer because they're not having to deal with, I've forgotten my login, when's the next flight to X, Y and Z, right? All stuff that can be done. Right? That is enhancing. That's where technology enhances... The experience, because it's a cost reduction in the basis that you don't have to have as many people in the chat uh, in, in the customer services. In this case, I think what's happened is that they've just reallocated the customer services people to be more concentrating on the real problems that they need to be able to solve, which are the ones where you're going to get your most negative, uh, uh, yeah. you know, experiences out of if you can't you can't resolve them. That's a good thing. So that's where I'd start. I'd start anywhere where I interface directly with the customer face-to-face and how I can improve that.
1: Yeah, and I think what you've said will actually be very well received by listeners here. I mean, financial advisors and planners across the uk what they're great at doing is talking to people and listening to people uh, and that is the valuable part of the job it seems in the main so yes good to hear you say that and good to know that robots aren't taking over it's always something that you do hear thrown around usually yeah. quite carelessly but yeah
0: i, I think the, the, the movement towards robo advice right it's it's a business driven development in order to be able to reduce the cost of uh, of you know. Mm-hmm. It's providing a service.
1: Well, actually, yeah, the robo-advice is good to bring in because I think when it came about, people were thinking, this is a way to service kind of less uh, wealthy clients that will eventually become good face-to-face clients. But for the meantime, let's give them a robo-proposition. Uh, and that actually brings me on to the next question, which is you know the advice gap. So uh, the documentary we put out uh, this year touched upon this and the millions of people that don't receive advice, some don't know it exists, some can't afford it, all sorts of other reasons why people don't get it. Do you think, uh, therefore, that actually technology is the key to to giving people advice? I mean, that was the aim of robo-advice. I mean, how successful that's been, I'll let other people judge. But do you think tech is the answer in some shape or form?
0: I think it's definitely part of the answer. So I think that robo-advice combined with some form of uh, interaction Uh, between people would work incredibly well but just robo advice on its own is going to be deficient and people to people for the whole time is going to be too expensive so we've got to find a a medium balance Um, great example of a great journey that I've just undergone was Habito and the mortgage journey which is pretty much automated up until the fact where I actually need to chat to, to an advisor who gives me what I require in terms of my my choice of mortgages and then the customer service after the end of that was fantastic as well that's a great example of a of a blended journey
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i think that's what we're going to be finding is that in order to lower the cost of service we've, we we can't we can't do that with humans the whole time yeah, so we've yeah, got yeah. to find a way of being able to use technology to be able to do that but it's automating the process is completely mad um, and i think that you you can't rely on ai to do everything for you on a basis. Or, yeah, it's, it's not even AI; it's just machine learning. I mean, it's not—it's not even artificial intelligence. We haven't even got to that stage yet. This is just about algorithms doing things, and algorithms uh, are, are only as good as the people who program the algorithms, uh, with their inherent biases of how they program them. When it comes down to it, so you're in a position whereby, you know, it's it, it, there are there are barriers to that being a positive, neutral outcome.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say with robo advice when that came through, there were people surprised you know, that, that had their own robo-advice propositions that actually, more often than not, there was a prompt before anything could be executed. And actually, to be honest, that sounds more like a blended human robo-experience yeah. anyway. And perhaps part of the confusion around it was that people didn't understand how it might work or even know what to expect. Um, so as for the other thing that I touched upon, this advice gap and this kind of difficulty of actually getting people in front of an advisor do you, do you think we can reduce the costs of financial advice uh, to such an extent that people you know just your average man on the street will be able to receive it
0: I think what you what you want to be able to do is to work out what the what the person on the street actually needs for their advice so I think there is this you know this short medium long term set of advice that we've got to be able to provide and it's a lot of people are probably not looking to financial advice today because they don't think about even the very, very short term. They're not thinking they're thinking about living for today. Um, And we're in a position whereby we, I think there's a lot more sort of behavioral psychology we need to do about why people need advice and what value they can gain out of advice. Because my fundamental view is, you know, know, millions of households in this country do not switch their energy providers, Mm -hmm. yet there is hundreds of pounds sitting there to be uh, switched. We live in a world whereby companies to this day have created a loyalty penalty, that the longer you stay with a company, the more likely you are to be ripped off by them and be charged a great deal more, right? Which is the complete opposite. Why? Because the financial markets want to see customer numbers going up rather than length of tenure and relationship Mm -hmm. going forward. So there's an example of that. But when it comes down to that, what advice do people need? And I think some of the technology which has started to think about this, like just the auto savings platforms, Mm -hmm. the chips, the money boxes, right? They're starting to say, what's your goal? Is your goal a short-term goal that you want to be able to go on holiday in six months' time and you want to save a 1,000 quid for that or whatever? Right, well, now, we, now we'll now we work out how we can get to your goal quickly and we'll also read how much you've got and put that away. Now, now that's, you know, I think been a very positive experience for lots of people. It might feel a little bit nanny staty about it, but because you're starting to get people to think about goals, mm-hmm. you can start to now start to say to a 25-year-old, right, what is it that you want to be able to achieve in the next... 10, 15 years. And I think we're going to get a lot of very, very short term financial advice sorted for people very quickly through technology. I, yeah. I, I, think, sorry, I think the longer term stuff like pensions and everything is going to be much, much harder, because I don't think people are thinking uh, in that length of time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I think auto enrolment uh, you know, is going to change that. And I think that falls to a certain extent, uh, has changed that because I think it falls now on companies, to be just as important to, to tell you about your financial advice as the financial mm-hmm. advisor is.
1: Yeah, do you think gamification is a big part of this as well? Because I think for a lot of people, finances, bills, I mean, it's the kind of stuff you want to ignore at the end of the day, isn't it? You don't necessarily want to talk about it. But if you make it fun, I suppose maybe there's reason to engage. Have you seen any examples of that?
0: I think well, I mean, chip's a really nice setup. I don't want to call, call chip gamification as such, because it's not about rewarding you for doing things. But I suppose it is because it's giving you some nice nice sort of like little memes and funny jokes yeah. and ways of doing things with emojis. And it's very jokey. It, it appeals in a way that I can see it appeals to me. And I'm certainly not a millennial um, or Gen Xer. Um, you know, so it, it, I think that's value. But the, the point about this is that, you know, gamification is, it comes from games, right? And games are where normally they're about entertainment, and uh, so, in doing so, when you're playing games, there is nothing apart from you know maybe you want to get to the next level, but you're more about being entertained. This is not entertainment we're talking about. This is people's lives we're talking about. And I find it I, I find that we need to do a huge amount more across every single utility which has been uh, not just utilities, but you know telecoms, broadband, everything where it's, it's been, and banking where it's been reduced now to a price based decision. Um, you know it's now do I put my money into savings account x which is 1.45 percent or savings account y which is 1.4 percent that's not what it is you know where's that money being invested is there mm-hmm. an ethical issue to work what they're doing with their basis there's a hundred other questions just aren't being asked it's all come down to a price and, and we've dumbed everything down to price so we need to be now get to to stop getting people to think about that and start thinking more about what are the goals that I want to be able to achieve Mm -hmm. and what am I prepared to do with and what type of companies do I want to be able to achieve those with?
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely fascinating. Um, But Ross, I'm going to move things on quickly. I've kind of, I've put you in a good position here. We've answered some nice questions about making advice businesses better, more efficient, more profitable uh, and some really interesting stuff. Uh, around tech and the human element to it as well. I now have to bring you back to something that we said on the uh, discussion we had on the phone (laughs) before, and I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, We were talking about regulation, and you said the more regulation, the better. Now, I think there are some advisors listening to this that would actually think, well, okay, you've maybe got a point. I think there's some others that will be less amenable to that view. So so what did you mean uh, when you said that?
0: Uh, Well, what I meant was that, from my perspective, regulation is has, in particularly in the financial industry, been a massive positive. And I think it's been a massive positive for two things. The first is that most of the regulation has been about both consumer protection, but also about providing consumers with portability of data. Now, this is really important for me because we live in a world of now... Wherever you look, monopolies which hold your data—you know, the Facebooks, the Googles—they hold a massive amount of data about you that you have no access to whatsoever. So, GDPR and uh, PSD two, even even Mifid two to a certain extent, are all about giving consumers back control of their data that they own and that they can now move from X, you know, X service to Y service in a friction-free manner, right? Or, or say, delete it. Or say, don't use it for these matters, right? So the first thing is that most of the regulation has been about putting consumers back in control. That's a good thing. It's not a good thing if you spent the last 30 years trying to rip your customers off, or you're trying to you know, obfuscate them by pulling wool over their eyes in the basis, and that's how you made your money. Sorry, your business doesn't really deserve to continue on in this new world. But from my perspective, having consumers having control is fantastic. And I think the, the second thing about regulation is that it... it <laughs> we go back to your point about... Uh, uh, your financial advisor who's using Excel as a back office tool mm-hmm. right there is a spread of you know we've got financial advisors who are the most technically enabled possible you've got startups which are probably out uh, out in front of those guys and then you've got this whole spread of different people uh, who are less technically labeled until you come to the end of the person using Excel Well, maybe there's a person not even using Excel maybe there's someone who's still doing it in you know spreadsheet in spreadsheets via, via paper right. Mm. When regulation comes on, it's not about what the effect is on the people who are at the top end of this, the, the really technically enabled companies. It's about bringing everyone else up to a level and standard of technology adoption and transformation that they can operate properly as a level playing field. So that means... How you store your data, how you keep that private, uh, how you give consumers control of that data. All of that means, you know, if you're a highly technically enabled company, you've probably done 95% of it already when the regulation came in. But those people who haven't have got to now spend time, effort, energy to be able to update what they're doing. That's a good thing because that gets them down the digital transformation journey quicker because now they've got things in a way that is, is at is a, a level playing field, let's, let's say, you know, playing field zero. So for those two reasons, regulation for me has been incredibly positive because it's about looking after the customer, which is, you know, we're not doing that, we, don't, we shouldn't be in business. And number two is it's about bringing everyone else along the line to up to a level playing field of having decent quality foundations for digital transformation moving forward.
1: Mm. Do you think that makes it harder for smaller businesses? And I ask because... You know, there's people like yourselves keen to work with banks uh, and bigger organisations because, you know, that's lucrative work if you can help people automate that stuff. But for someone running a business with four or five people in it, um, maybe people aren't looking to help them out. Maybe the tech solutions aren't there or aren't affordable. Do you think that might be a kind of unexpected kind of consequence of regulation?
0: So that's a really interesting one because, you know, I'm quite clear that, you know, as Mark said, the tools of production are in the hands of the masses now. Uh, I don't think that you need to pay massive amounts of money to be able to put in solutions for what regulation requires. I mean, when it comes down to recording certain things and time stamping certain things, you might have to pay for a particular piece of software. But when it comes down to customer databases... You don't. You can you can you, you can use off the shelf databases. You've got CRM tools like HubSpot, which are completely free to use. So it shouldn't be a cost. Yes, there's a time cost in terms of being able to train up on those, but I don't think it, it sets the, that you're suddenly having to pay massive amounts of money, into, unless it's something very very specialist within those regulations, such as MIFID two and such as you know mm-hmm. time stamping every single transaction that goes forward. My 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 feeling on this is that everything is now available at, a, at a, such a minimal cost that it's now just about access to that and understanding what's available to you, to you on that basis. Uh, I mean, now I look at it, I do all of my company's accounts, not not so much company, my own personal company's accounts, through zero. And I really don't need to have an accountant. I mean, I have an accountant just to make sure I haven't done anything something yeah. stupid, right? But I've taken <laughs> yeah. away all that bookkeeping out of that accountant in order to be able to say, look, this is, this is now open to me. It costs me you know, 10 quid a month or whatever it is. It's fantastic. So the tools are there. It's just about people's knowledge bases. Have they had to upskill themselves knowledge-wise? Have they had to skill themselves training-wise? Yes. But that's a good thing because they're just not going to be as competitive in five years' time if they haven't done that. So this is a necessary cost of staying in business as far as I'm concerned.
1: Mm -hmm. Interesting. And we are actually ourselves doing an event to connect people with some of the tech solutions that help them improve what they do. Feel free to get in touch with me if you'd like more information on that. Um, Otherwise, though, Ross, I mean, you've you've, some really interesting stuff. I'm going to ask you one more question because you've given us loads here. Um, And again, it is kind of for the smaller businesses, actually, because I think they've possibly got a tougher job in integrating this stuff. And also, they're less likely to work with a kind of digital transformation expert. Um, So if you were someone now running an advice business, say, uh, you know, a smaller one again, no more than 20 or even 50 staff, what are the first few things you would be looking to do to make sure that your your business is properly tech-integrated and tech-savvy, uh, to make it you know, prosper in, in the market that we're in? Right.
0: So the first thing I'd do is I would make the case to the board or the owner or whoever it might well be because they've got to own this. Culturally, it doesn't work if you try and do something at uh, another level within the management structures uh, or from the from most junior person wanting to try and do it. It has to be owned by the most important people sitting uh, who own the business. They've got mm-hmm. to understand why they've got to do it. Number two is I would then carve out some time for somebody to do this as a job so be that 10% of their time 50% of their time whatever it might well be that you think that you need in order to be able to do this you need someone to run this because if you try and do this just on top of your normal job it will never get done it will always get pushed down in terms of the priority ratings thirdly I would make sure that person spends the first two three months of their time just reading mm-hmm. and talking to people and going to events like you like the ones you're running on a basis understanding that that they're upskilling themselves in what the industry is doing digitally. And then I would go through that customer journey exercise for them to be able to work out what it is that they should be prioritizing on, what the good looks like in the future, and doing that with the stakeholders and with some of their customers, which is all free to be able to be done, and come to a set of priorities and investment decisions that come off the back of that. And then that's good use of the time to be able to say, this is what this is how far away we are. There is no transformation end. Let's just be clear, which is great for companies like SOMO, quite clearly, because you're constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. You're constantly moving with the market. The market's only getting faster and faster and faster, but there is a transformation start. And if you don't start it, and you know, as I said, everything is available out there. there is more, no, there's more data created in the last two days than have been created since the universe began. There's more stuff out there. There's more expertise that you can access for free. And it's just about being able to skill yourself up to be able to take advantage of that and then follow what has been termed, you know, there's great books out there like the Agile Organization. Um, There's, you know, fantastic books about transformation. Just giving someone the authority to go and do it is what most companies need to be able to do.
1: Fantastic, Ross. And if that doesn't get you thinking about fintech and technology, I don't know what will. Ross, thank you for joining us. Really enjoyed that podcast. Been a pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you very much indeed.